This is Carl. This is Mark. And this is Sarah. And this is Retrograding. Yes, this is Retrograding, the show where three 90s kids take adult looks at their favorite childhood movies. Uh, it was my pick this week, and instead of choosing a movie I saw as a child, I chose a classic 80s film that uh, I found in this book of classic 80s films that I have. And we were trying to find one that all of us hadn't seen. We are going to still looking for that, but we couldn't find one that we hadn't seen, so I chose one that was famous... That apparently you two hadn't seen, had called done. Beverly Hills Cop. We, we had the problem with all the ones you suggested I had seen. Or, and we had both seen, uh, or both not seen, uh, Captain My Captain, Dead Poets Society. Society. Yes. But Mark saw that one. But Mark had How seen that one. How have you not but seen that? I, I know it know. as a reference. I, I haven't uh, seen and, it. And I had seen all of the weird fantasy sci-fi ones. Anyway, so we went back to this classic 80s film, and... Truth be told, I have never seen an unedited version of this film before. <laughs> I saw it on TV, and my God, the amount of F-bonds in this film. They're very nonchalant, too. It's really kind of interesting. Because it's, it's a weird thing for the fact that you think of, like, nowadays, oh, we're so less reserved and stuff like that. But cursing in movies is almost even more aggressive this day, where, like, today, all, like, in this movie, all of the cursing was just, like, very natural and very, like, smooth. And, like, nowadays it's, like, I'm going to really And, like, every sentence. Right. You get, you get two F-bombs before an R rating. And you better use those well. But I don't know. It just felt like how normal people curse in this movie. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, we can get into that, but we're going to start off with a 60-second synopsis. I was so hoping I that one you of didn't you... have it ready so I could surprise you. Oh, no. Them, but... I'm all ready to go. Uh, so somebody get me a timer and a countdown, and I'll do my best. I do have a timer ready. Three, two, one, go. Axel Foley is a struggling Detroit cop who is visited by an old criminal friend, Mikey, who has brought, to him, brought with him a bunch of stolen German barabons. When the two get back from a night out drinking, Axel is knocked out by Zach, a criminal acquaintance of Mikey, who has come for the bonds and kills Mikey in the process. Axel takes vacation uh, to head to Beverly Hills and investigate Mike's murder, enlisting the help of Jenny Summers, an art dealer and mutual friend. The investigation leads to Jenny's boss, Victor Maitland, who doesn't appreciate the questioning and has his henchmen throw Axel out a window. Axel is arrested and meets Taggart and Rosewood, Two Beverly Hills cops who initially don't like him and are tasked with tracking him. After failing or foiling a robbery at a strip club, they all become friends. Investigating Maitland's warehouse, Axel uncovers an illegal importing operation for both drugs and bearer bonds. After confronting Maitland again and being arrested, Axel reveals his findings to the cops who not have enough to go on. Axel convinces Rosewood to go back to the warehouse where he and Jenny find drugs but found by Maitland. Uh, Jenny is captured and Axel tortured till Rosewood comes to his rescue. The two go to Maitland's re residence to save Jenny and by Taggart and the three storm the residence and engage in a massive shootout where Zack and Maitland are killed. The police uh, lie for Axel to keep him out of trouble and escort him to the city limits. Ah, so I was able to I do that. I didn't have a buzzer on the timer, but you were like 15 seconds over. So. 15! <laughs> I don't know. Ah. I, I'm just guessing. 
Because I, I practiced it before. I was able to get it down to 59 seconds, but mm. I stumbled over my words there a bit. So I bet I was at like 105 or 110 yeah, it's or something. probably not that bad. Anyway, I didn't do it this week. I almost never do it. So, but which is why I celebrate so much. We when don't I need to know about your personal it. life, Carl. Hey. Oh. Now, come on. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's get into long form. Uh, what did you guys see as adults that you may have missed as kids? Or what did you the see whole the, movie. as adults <laughs> this first time you were watching it? I was not alive when this film came out. Um, I, I wasn't either. Neither um, were you. I was. Oh, wait, you were. I forgot. I, I, was born in I don't remember what month it Sorry. came out, but Sorry, I, was I was approximately one year old. I was mixing up your age with someone else's. <laughs> Mark is the okay. oldest man alive. I was mixing you up with, with Jesse, who was born later. Uh, the thing that I noticed the most is uh, Eddie Murphy. I have not seen a lot of Eddie Murphy things, especially not recently. And I don't really get him as a comedian because he's he's got the he's got a cadence the way he talks. He says a lot of things. And I think it's specifically Eddie Murphy's style where he slips in curses so fluently, where he doesn't really register that he's saying anything offensive. It's just a word that comes up every other sentence because that's the way he talks. But, like, he doesn't tell jokes. And when he he finds something that's remotely funny, he'll repeat it, like, five times in a row. And then he laughs at himself with his great laugh. Uh Uh-huh. (laughs) Huh? Ah, that laugh made him perfect to play the donkey in Shrek. (laughs) It's interesting, though, because, well, we talked about this before we started the recording, and apparently we had different opinions about it, so... Having never seen it before, and not really knowing what to expect, I have seen several other of these, you know, comedy action cop movies... And I guess I enjoyed it. I think I think a lot though. What you would you agreed with? I think was the music kind of pulls oh, yeah. you in because I you could just get and of course it's very eighties, but it's it was great music to go with the movie. Yeah, includes a, including what I thought of as the crazy frog song, which was <laughs> actually a song before the frog did it. Turns out. Did you ever look up the thing about the frog crazy frog controversy? I did not. We can talk about that later. What was the frog one? Was that the one that went... The song is called Axel Foley, I think. So. No, I think it's called Axel F. Also, can we talk about the name Axel? It's not a real name. Everyone in the movie just assumes this is a normal name they've heard at least five times in their life. Axel Foley does not sound like a cop in an 80s movie. He sounds like the bully in a teen coming-of-age drama. He sounds like a make and model of a car. That's true. Oh, or a band member. He's not go. actually a cop from a Detroit. He's an alien. Because Hitchhiker's <laughs> Guide to the Galaxy. Ford Prefect was a car. I, w- I thought you were going to take that as he was built in one of the car factories. <laughs> in and he's Detroit? A precurs- he is a precursor to RoboCop. Maybe. But no, Ford Prefect was a car. That's how he got his he name. He sure was. Yes. So speaking of Detroit and cars... Uh, the movie starts off with that chase scene, and oh, I want to talk about. So no, it starts out with well, the it worst starts off tourism with, ad. Ever. Yes, starts off with a tourism ad for Detroit, apparently, and then you go into this chase scene. But I guess the the first thing that I noticed about this was the cop cars, and I I think that they did it on purpose to show the difference between poor Detroit 
police department and Beverly Hills rich people police department. But like the police cars had their numbers were like on top of the car in duct tape almost it looked like. And they just had like a magnetic thing on the side of the car that said Detroit police. Like it it wasn't even a painted, it was just a blue car. It wasn't even painted to look like what a cop car. What kind of car, car is that? I know it's a very, like, I don't know. The classic cop car is a Crown Vic. That's all I could tell you. Yeah. Crown Vic I don't is... know if those were Crown Vicks. Cop car. Uh, but <laughs> I think the, you're definitely right. They wanted to sort of the juxtaposition between Detroit cops and Beverly Hills cops. So at the same time, that, um, that advertisement for Detroit at the beginning, that's setting the stage is also that same juxtaposition. Because the Detroit we see uh, is the Motor City. I think we see, like, the ghetto of the Motor City. (laughs) Yeah, we don't see any, like, the upper management of the company. We see the working man, where people are walking home uh, after a day at work and just drenched in, like, sweat or oil from their jobs. We see kids breakdancing on the street. Uh, we get, we see kids playing in an abandoned lot where in the background there's a, a derelict building with all of its windows broken to suggest that Detroit is a, uh, a lively but poor city, uh, which is accurate, but this film is maybe portraying it a bit more than it needs to. When we get to Beverly Hills, everything's nice. Everything looks like a castle. The police station especially, I'm surprised that place didn't have a moat. That was tailored and like a fountain and um, landscaped but flowers see, that, everywhere. That's, that would be too old fashioned considering what the inside looked like. Because <laughs> we were discussing that it, we thought it was like mission control at NASA because of all of the computers and control consoles they had. I think Sarah called it the Death Star. It was, I did call yes. it the Death Star. Um, yeah, they're showing a very, I don't, I lived in Southern California, but I did not spend really any time in Beverly Hills. But with California, you can go from, like, I know the area I grew up in, the town I lived in was probably the safest town in the entire area, and you go one town over, and it's basically gang town. And so, so it'd be like, oh, this area is, like, the nicest place ever, and everything is great, like, probably you go about 15 miles the other way, and it's gonna look like Detroit. What this movie is doing is it's taking small sections. Yeah. It's a very condensed story. They're, they're trying really hard to, to really hammer home the fish out of water theme. Yes. And not have any subtlety in that. And I think they do fairly well, especially in the way that they do the policing. Because both uh, Rosewood and Taggart are cops that are playing everything by the book when Foley shows up. Uh, to the point where Taggart loses his temper and punches Foley and then gets chewed out by his boss, has to come back and apologize and ask Axel Foley if he wants to press charges on him. I, I do like, with a lot of times when they do fish-out-of-water stories, you get very much the, these are the good guys, these are the bad guys sort of thing, whereas this one doesn't really do that. Like, it's more of a, we see differently and we learn things from each other, but no one's really good or bad. He makes friends with the new guys in Beverly Hills. The bad guys are completely separate. Well, the, the bad separate guys group. are the bad guys. Yeah, <laughs> the bad guys are the bad guys. But it's not like, well, I'm a poor person from somewhere and I'm a fish out of water now moving to like my new rich neighborhood and all of these people are like the 1980s bully equivalent. That isn't really the story in this. They're, they're different and they don't understand each other and how they work at first, but they all get along by the end. Except for old man glasses. <laughs> Though Eddie Murphy does try 
there's a bit of that, especially uh, where Eddie Murphy is trying to explain to them what coffee grounds mean. They apparently have no idea, so, giving the sense that they're very good at um, uh, they're very good at the day to day job of a cop, but don't know like these large scale drug scams. That Although, are going if on. they're in a big enough district, that might not be the area. They might have an entire drug unit that's doing that, and that's not their area that they know anything about. They might be the just general police area, and they're just doing routine stuff. They might have vice, homicide, all sort of other areas taking care of those more specialized things if we're in a large California city. Yeah, especially in a rich neighborhood. I could definitely see yeah. that. Whereas the where Axel Foley comes from, everyone kind of does everything. Yeah, so if they're not drug that. cops, they might have no idea about any of that At stuff. least according to this movie, everybody does everything in Detroit. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. They're, they're low staff. So there are people I really like this movie, and Axel Foley is definitely one of them. Because although I was waiting for Eddie Murphy to tell a joke, and Eddie Murphy doesn't really tell jokes. He just kind of talks, and it's the, uh, the energy he brings to a scene that really gets your enjoyment out of it. Uh, the, the few cases he actually has a joke, like, he talks about getting thrown out of a window and getting charged for disturbing the peace. Uh, it relates it to, if I get thrown out of a moving car, is that jaywalking? Oh, that, that line did make me laugh. Right. Uh, but three lines before that was him just repeating over and over again, I got thrown out of an effing window. <laughs> Which is not a joke, but if you repeat it long enough, people will laugh. And so um, I liked him. I liked his energy. I liked what he brought to it. I don't think he's a very good cop, though. Oh, he is not. Because his police style seems to be show up at a place and wait two seconds and then something will happen and that'll advance the plot. And he will probably get punched some... Always in the stomach. It's always, yeah, in, always the stomach. in the stomach. It's because that's where he laughs and they don't want him to yeah, laugh Yeah, that's anymore. where he built up all his immunity. <laughs> the, I, I think... The first time he went to the warehouse, it was like he was doing some sleuthing and he finds coffee grounds. And then from there, people just happen to show up while he's but there. He and that's the only really... other evidence he got. Otherwise, he still had the coffee grounds, which was kind of evidence, but he didn't know what was and happening he until really he found the other find people. he doesn't really find the coffee grounds. They're literally just sitting out on the most obvious table. He doesn't have to look under anything. He doesn't have to open or pick anything. They're just the only table in the whole warehouse and they're right in the center of them. This is more on the bad guys being bad at cleaning up than says anything about Eddie Murphy. Oh, yes. I've, I've noticed that. Uh, but yeah, for most of this movie, except for like the last 30 minutes where they go back to the warehouse and find actual drugs, Eddie Murphy is basing his entire investigation over coffee grounds. That's all he has, which is a great hunch but you can't arrest anybody for that. You certainly can't commit crimes to find out if somebody else is committing a bigger crime than the crime you committed also, to discover it. Also, I really hate the way they did the storytelling list because he finds the coffee grounds and he makes the whole joke. They make the whole joke about, oh, coffee grounds. I used something to make coffee. But then he doesn't actually explain to her what the coffee grounds for. You don't understand the coffee ground things until about half an hour later till they find them again and then the cocaine is in the coffee. And I'm like, yeah, you can assume it's a drug thing, but they don't actually tell you until half an hour later when he shows up at the warehouse again. Sarah, they could only afford so much drugs for this movie. But that's the assumption. 
assumption that Jenny is just totally okay with, oh yeah, we made it into a joke. I'll totally ignore actually leading that question again. Okay, well, that's a good point. Jenny's kind of stupid. if you found just a crate of coffee grounds, open coffee grounds, not in a package, not in a curing cup, not in a filter, just open <laughs> coffee grounds in a crate, would that suggest to you that something was amiss? Yes, maybe. Okay, good. It took you a long time to think through that. Sorry. I'm I glad was, we can agree. I was trying to think of, could you use coffee grounds as some sort of, like, packaging peanuts? And I'm like, yes, but could you use it for anything other than cocaine? <laughs> oh. Um, no, but the thing is, like, she's helping him sneak into this warehouse, risking her job, all of this stuff. And she's okay with after asking him once and him not answering her, just letting it go. I would not. I'd be like, yeah, yeah, funny joke. No, really, what's with the coffee <laughs> but grounds? I think that was about the time that the people came in and they got distracted anyway. I think but it might have been. I think that was part of the mystery of the plot is that they didn't tell you what there it is meant no mystery so that the plot. audience wouldn't, wouldn't that's know. The They're generic 80s bad guys. Of course it's drugs. Well, that's Because the whole true. mystery here for him to figure out is who killed my friend? Who killed Mikey? As an audience member, we know who killed Mikey. We, we saw, saw Mikey get shot. Yeah, it was Balding Bad. It yeah, was the it was best Balding death bad. scene ever. Oh, 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 they are not good at their staging of, of violence. There is- by Balding Bad, we should explain. Uh, this guy goes on, uh, has a role in Breaking Bad. Uh, he is, uh, what's the, he's, the guy who owns the chicken joint is the big boss. This is his underling that does all like the the water works for him. I've never seen um, Breaking Bad in my life. I'm explaining it to people who have. <laughs> uh, and so in Breaking Bad, he's bald. In this movie, he has some remnants of hair left over, <laughs> but he is balding. Well, I mean, it was like thirty years difference. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, he's an older man now. He looks, yeah. I think he looks better bald. He looks bald. better bald, yeah. He he should have Bruce Willis did earlier. Mm-hmm, that's what I did. Yeah, it was, now that I'm used to it, it's a good look for you. I, the very first time, it was a great reaction from oh, Sarah. Oh, the very first time, it would be a shock. It was uh, I think. I think, I think, if I remember correctly. I just said hair, it was, hair, hair. Maybe, uh, this may be a different... Uh, thing that I'm remembering, but I do remember specifically going into your house, you looking at me, something had changed, and you said, what, what, what is your face? Oh, <laughs> yeah. that also sounds was like that, was the, I don't know if that was the hair, though. Was it, that I don't you, know if it was bald. I think it was when you grew there. a beard, maybe. I, uh, can we just spend the whole podcast talking about Carl's facial hair? Um, and, so this and is no longer a movie podcast. This is okay. a beard podcast. We Walking back to bearding bad. Uh, I, we're just going to do pictures of celebrities and people we know, and I'm going to judge their facial hair. All right. I mean, you already do the hair report on this podcast. Well, as, I mean, as long as you're judging people, you used to do fashion judging. We haven't heard that in a That's while. true. Now, you did tell us about Jenny's outfit that you really enjoyed. The blue one? Oh, yes. <laughs> the, the MC Hammer Pants and Matching Windbreaker Jacket. Yes. Yeah, which yes. I described as this is like a rich girl fancy jumpsuit. It is, but it is two pieces. It, it yeah, it almost looked like um, one piece, but I I'm think trying it was to think two. if it. What did the girlfriend wear in the thriller video? 
Mm. Was she wearing a dress? Well, I mean, the they already no. had the thriller references earlier in the movie. So. No, true. I definitely there think are... she's wearing, like, in one of the sections, I think she's wearing, like, a matching, like, cropped pants and windbreaker set. Now, I'm glad you brought that up, Mark, because that that is the one thing that they show that while these two areas, Beverly Hills and Detroit, are very different. One's clean, one's dirty, one's rich, one's poor. Everyone the one thing that connects Michael it, Jackson. everybody loves Michael Jackson so much that people walk down the street dressed as Michael Jackson wherever you go. I mean, I it was 1984, so... Maybe you could say those guys are like impersonators on their way to work. <laughs> Maybe, like to the Chinese theater for that type of work? Maybe, yeah. Like, Beverly Hills, I mean, maybe they're they're going shopping before work and then they're going to head over to the touristy part of town. I don't know. I am, for someone who lives in, lived in Southern California for 11 years, I do not know anything about the geography of the L.A. Beverly Hills area. Nothing. I know there's a rodeo drive. A rodeo drive. <laughs> I know... <laughs> I know there's a, there's a really, oh no wait, is that San Francisco with like the really steep, windy road? Yes, that, really is. No, no, that, yes. Okay. that is definitely San Francisco. Do San you know Francisco that Beverly Hills being... is where you want to be? Ah, that's where you, oh wait, oh, <laughs> Daniel. Uh, I was going to try to reference Beverly Hillbillies. Oh, wow. Uh, and I thought that it was in Beverly Hills where they shot the ground and found oil. No, no they that's were not the case. No, they that were was in their in... home state. Yes, yeah, so where was that's the how they state? got rich somewhere? Where? Texas? No, I think. Well, it, Texas tea. Maybe that is. it is Texas tea. Oh, it but is. Te- I, no, but I don't. Think no, no, they no. Were in Texas, Texas tea is what you call oil. Yeah. I don't think they're in. They're in Texas. I don't think they were in Texas. Anywho, but I don't know. back to Beverly Hills cop. <laughs> um... So, I have mixed feelings about Axel Foley. One, I was expecting more jokes out of this stand-up comedian, and there weren't, and that's fine, because I liked his energy. Two, I don't think he's a very good cop. He is surviving by um, uh, his daring or his, um, his moxie. As opposed to any sort of skill in detecting. Which is funny because at the very beginning, his, whoever, is it its chief? Whoever the yeah. guy is who's yelling at him every time, uh, who has like no acting at all, just yelling. But mm-hmm. but that whoever that guy was says more than once how, oh, you're such a great cop, but you just don't act like it. And then he ends up solving the thing. But it's not really, he just kind of solves it because he's chasing after one person who he thinks killed his friend. Right. So it's and I would argue he solves it because the guy he's chasing is bad at concealing crime. Well, it reminds me of Chris Tucker from Rush Hour, where he just kind of he's a cop and he yeah <laughs> yeah I know <laughs> <laughs> he just kind of I mean he goes around and does things that he's not supposed to do, and he goes off on his own and doesn't get back up etc cetera, etc. Cetera, but he ends up solving the crime in the end just because he happens to figure it out somehow. I mean, that's the classic 80s cop um, arc in a movie is where you go off the reservation, you do your own thing, you break all the rules, but you solve a major case, you make the police department look good, meaning, hey, uh, we're going to walk you back in open arms. You're a super cop now. I'm not going to pay pull for out your my hotel angry, expenses. My angry lieutenant um, impersonation again. Oh, do you need my badge and my gun? <laughs> I want your badge and your gun on my desk right now. You're a loose cannon. 
You need to swear a lot more if you're going to be in this movie, Sarah. Oh, that's for sure. Oh, and if you just in case you were wondering, the Beverly Hillbillies came from Tennessee. Oh, ah. yeah, that sounds about right. Sure. Mm-hmm. But let's talk about some of the other characters in the movie, especially the oh my favorite my favorite cops, uh, Taggart and Rosewood. Uh, Rosewood being played oh. by Judge Ryan. I love Rosewood. I thought your favorite cop would be Paul. At the very beginning, who has Reiser? like two lines. <laughs> there are so many Paul Risers in this movie, and only oh, one of them yeah. is actually Paul Riser. <laughs> that was that just the style, and the eight. maybe they were all impersonators because he was so popular then. Yeah, because Mad About You had not begun yet. I no, but I think want to say aliens... that I watched. I watched too many episodes of Mad About You for being a small child who did not care about like. Married couple situational oh, yeah, comedies? Yeah. I watched it because I really liked the theme song. <laughs> um, but yeah, I didn't realize how, what that show was about until way later. But because like, that's about a long-term relationship that ends, uh, or are they married? Uh, but married. it ends in them getting divorced. Do they get divorced That's how that end? series ends. I remember they and have the baby. Happy. Spoiler alert. And that alert. the baby can't get to sleep, <laughs> and so they keep... Getting taxis and riding taxis around town because that's ah. the only way the baby sleeps. That's the one episode about Mad About You that I remember the plot I remember of. that it was a show. That's about all. I don't know if I ever watched a full episode. Yeah, it was. I think the, I might have had a low-key crush on Helen Hunt. Yeah. Well, it was the heyday of Helen Hunt. Yes. So, let's talk about Judge <gasps> Reinhold. Did you know that movie? it has a Chinese <laughs> and Argentinian version? Uh, do they change the name of Beverly to Hills match the, la- no. match the language of the uh, well, country that it's based in? One is called Jin Hung On You, which is translated oh. as Wedding Apartment. <laughs> and one is called Loco Por Vas, which I assume just means crazy for you. <laughs> Lovely. So, I love Judge Reinhold in this movie. I this love is Judge Reinhold classic, in a lot of movies. Yeah, this is classic Judge Reinhold, where I was telling Sarah this, Marky, I think you were gone at this point, that Judge Reinhold looks like what Anthony Michael Hall should have grown up to be. <laughs> I So, what strikes me, I I guess I didn't really think about the fact that Eddie Murphy wasn't telling a lot of jokes because like you said the energy is always there when he's because he's the lead and he has all the energy there aren't a lot of jokes he just talks really fast and does stuff but Judge Reinhold is pretty much the comedy of the movie and I I guess I haven't seen a lot of his movies necessarily I definitely recognize him from the Santa Claus where he's kind of the stuffed shirt guy who has and it's really interesting how comedic he is yeah he's like the he's the sad punching bag in this film where he's the rookie cop that gets teased by all the other cops and eddie murphy keeps pulling things on him and his partner later on if he like if he discovers something huge he knows he doesn't have the expertise to deal with it but you can read like the shock and like despair at knowing he has to deal with things in his eyes but he's very expressive he has the innocence yes and and all that where he just says what he's thinking at some points (laughs) true oh oh Uh, (laughs) sorry i just choked (laughs) on orange vanilla vanilla coke it's real good but don't choke on it guys okay well that's so you 
You recommend it except for choking. I don't recommend choking a lot of times. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm saying you recommend this for everything except for choking. Yeah, no, Something not, else would be better for choking. It's not this drink. Don't try not it. Not sponsored, but check out that Coca-Cola. Uh. Oh, Coke, oh. can we get a sponsorship? If we could get Excuse that me, Coke. Coke. If we Let could me get call that... up Coke real quick. And this movie is about Coke, but the different well, Coke. Different... That is, well, I, I mean, saw, I saw Rosewood, thing. or no, Taggart holding a can of Coke. At least I thought it was. I thought it was product placement, but you can't read the can. It's just a red can that he's holding. Well, you know what? Well, and after watching Mac and Me, I guess some of the product placement in other movies is so subtle that I might not have noticed. But I was not. I don't think I saw a lot of blatant well, stuff in this movie that I noticed the, right away. We're in the early '80s, and that was like the beginnings. Because we, in marketing, we talk about like the real. Obviously, there was product placement and stuff before that. But, like, the real big thing that's like, ooh, product placement can make us money and we can have this be a big thing. E.T. Yeah. E.T. is kind of that starting point. So we're still early 80s. We're not quite to the point where, like, it's getting everywhere in your face yet. Because there was, like, slowly getting to it. Then they're getting to it where, like, product placement's everywhere and they're not very good at it. So it's just constantly people walking up being like, you know... I really like to clean with my such and such name brand thing. It makes things such easier. And now, Do like, you know what would help me solve this crime? A nice, refreshing Pepsi Cola. Like, now, it clears the throat and the mind. But now we have product placement everywhere, but they're a little bit better at least at like sort of seamlessly integrating it into the thing instead of just like stopping and having the characters do a full commercial in the middle of the scene. Right. Be like, like, it'll be something in the background, something of the set dressing. Yes. Or something that, like, was going to be need to be used anyway. And so, well, it's important for this character to be drinking something. Why don't we see if anyone specifically wants it to be their stuff? Um, as opposed to, like, I, I don't know what movie I was watching, and it was from, like, ten years ago, where, like, these teenagers are having this conversation while they're putting on their makeup, and they had to stop and explain everything makeup <laughs> item they were using. It's like, oh, this is the Maybelline such-and-such. Such. I love it so much. And I'm like, oh, oh. Oh, that might actually be very beneficial for me, because I don't know what half of makeup is for. Oh. Like, if they explain what it is and what it is used for, that could be very edifying for but them. Do you so know what eyeliner does, like... Carl? Now, <laughs> is it for the lips? Yes. <laughs> but, it. but it was so funny. So so we're early days of product placement, so they're, they're not quite... Getting back to, to Rosewood, the thing <laughs> I found really great about his character is, yes, he seems incompetent. He seems uh, very green. He seems like he's only had a few years on the force and maybe is just out of school. However, he is a crack shot in this yes. film. He, he can shoot someone from like 30 yards out when they have a machine gun and he has a revolver. And I think every person he killed was one shot. Like, yeah. he, would, he would duck and hide when they were shooting at him with their machine gun. He pops out in one shot and they fall over. <laughs> yeah. Every time he shoots at someone, they die. <laughs> so, like, apparently that's his skill set. That's how he reached this level at this age, knowing nothing else. He's just really good at shooting things. With a tiny pistol, too. It's not... Yeah. It's the... the what, what? The... the... Midget is cricket? it like a, a snub nose revolver? <laughs> oh yeah, no, is the, maybe I, the real I, one. I meant Sarah's Little cricket is yes. what we called it. <laughs> the men in black gun. Now, how did you guys feel about Taggart? 
Because he's playing yeah. that role of like he's the the straight man cop. Few more years on the force, plays everything straight, always tries to tell the truth. But I don't know. Does he? He kind of gets redeemed at the end. So but I don't know. Because he's I, not really a bad guy. He's just the right. one who can't let things go and go with the flow as much, right. and so it gets them into trouble. And in the end, he learns how to lie. Mm-hmm. No, 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 no. Taggart, Taggart, not Taggart. You're, are you what? talking about the lieutenant? No, the, Taggart, Taggart is. Yeah, but Rose the lieutenant is the one no, who lies at the end. No, but the t- lieutenant ah. was going to lie anyway. The whole thing is Taggart was the one who couldn't lie in the first place and says, "Hey, no, that's not what happened." And in the end, he says, "No, oh, I'm going to go the with end, that he lie." He agrees so, with the lie, right? So they're but, doing a callback because yeah. when Axel tells him the story of the strip club, Taggart has to tell the absolute truth. And so the chief knows that. And at the end, where the loot lies and the chief knows he's lying, he just turns to Taggart and says, all right, you're a straight guy. You'll tell me the absolute truth, what went on. And Taggart agrees and lies for them all. Which is, in in the movie, it's funny and it's great. No one gets in trouble. In real world, oh, it's, it's real bad. Oh, it's terrible police work. It is awful. Because yeah. these cops invaded a man's home without a warrant. And only the... The, the smallest probable cause that Jenny was even there. They have no proof that that's where they took Jenny. Ah, Jenny. But they break in and they just start, they do get shot at first, but they murder a whole lot of people. I mean, they're all basically just the same clone of Paul, what's his face, right? <laughs> Paul, Paul Reiser. Reiser. Yes. Reiser. One guy, one guy was a real Scarface. Uh, he, ha- he had a real Al Pacino And there was that one guy that I still think looked like, I swear was wearing eyeliner and looked like Zod. <laughs> now, what's eyeliner? Is that for the lips? <laughs> yes. Oh, shoot. I just remembered that I was supposed to look something up again at 1.30, so, but I don't remember what um, that was. I... That's the, the hop and roll. The hop and roll. We'll get back to that later. We're yeah. going to jump around the movie a lot. Um, but jump up, I, jump up, We do up that every time. Down. I kind of forgot to mention this earlier, which we didn't. Uh, during the scene where Mikey gets killed in the apartment he way at the beginning. It. Mikey they, likes it. He, <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't. He dies. So Axel and Mikey have been out drinking, right? They come back to this apartment building. They walk up the stairs his apartment just happens to be directly across from the staircase, but up in so the hallway for the apartment is just perpendicular to the staircase, right? So if you come up the stairs and look 90 degrees in either direction, you're going to see all the way down the hallway. He goes to unlock the door and this thug goon guy jumps out of nowhere and knocks him out on the back of the head. How did they not see these two guys standing right there in the middle of the hallway as they came up there? <laughs> I mean that's an excellent point. My only my only argument is that they're drunk. It, they are very drunk. Mikey in particular cannot stand on his own and needs to be propped up against a wall. And Axel's attention is on Mikey, keeping him safe. And let's see, Mikey Keeps Mikey is crying. in a position where he might be able to see these guys, but Axel is more awake and is not. Because Axel's trying to brace his friend, turns to his door to try to open it. And that's when he gets hit on the back of the head. Now, whether these guys were lying in wait or hiding, I don't know. Whether the movie just needed Axel to be out for two seconds while his (laughs) friends died, who knows? 
According to Carl, you have to watch this very closely or else suddenly Axel is gone and you have no idea where he went. So I got confused watching this because the first time I watched it, I was a little distracted, tried to do two things at once. I looked away for two seconds uh, and then Axel just wasn't in the scene anymore. And it was just Mikey and these two guys. And I didn't know what happened to Axel and I wanted him to come back. But he don't come back. He don't uh, be- come back. <laughs> he sure don't come back. Uh, so I had to rewind it and find out that, oh, he got hit in the back of the head and falls down. And that takes a second. And if you blink, you'll miss it. And then you won't understand why he isn't there anymore. So, yeah, if you're going to watch the movie, apparently you have to watch the movie. <laughs> Carl, Is that you're how right. that works? I knew it. He jumps down the stairs and he does a roll. But he, he jumps to the middle of the stairs and then <sighs> rolls down the rest of the stairs. But it is a really weird hop. Yeah. Like, he literally doesn't get off the ground. He just kind of... <laughs> it's like a video game hop where he just hops forward. Uh, imagine an Easter bunny, not oh, a real yeah. bunny, a man in an Easter bunny costume hop. It, That's the type of It hop. looks like he's doing the bunny hop dance. But then yes. goes into a weird... But he, he, he makes it halfway thin. And then the remaining, like, three stairs, he, like, rolls himself forward. <laughs> so this is during the final fight scene, to explain it to our audience. Uh, Axel has to get the jump on a guy with a machine gun. And so he goes behind him. Uh, but there's weird landscaping here. So he has to hop a little bit it, down the stairs, then roll. All of which is unnecessary. It is a rich person, slightly elevated terrace. Yes. Right. It takes more time for him to do the hop and roll than if he'd just run down the stairs. Yeah, he very much could have just run down, it's like, turned, no, got it's, the jump, Sarah, shot. Sarah, you know how video games work. You have to yeah. dodge and, and make but sure you don't get now, hit by the like enemy. Are you confusing video games not with like old a whole Star staircase. Trek? Because this was an old Star Trek maneuver. Had he been Captain Kirk, I would have accepted this battle roll. Well, and it's and not the open like hand a, slap. <laughs> it's not even like a full staircase where he's like, like you see in like action movies where they're coming down like the inner staircase and they jump over the railing and jump down. It is literally five steps. It's an elevated deck. He jumps down three steps. It's about a foot, maybe less than a foot that he hops. And then he does a full body roll down the same height. It takes more time for him to pick himself up from that roll than if he had just... Literally, he didn't even have to jump. He his legs are long enough. He could have just stepped down those three steps. <laughs> I could it was do an that. emergency. He was his adrenaline was high. He had to get those down, down those steps in the coolest way. Yeah, because then he had to go into the room with the skin chair. <laughs> so, uh, are there any other characters you wanted to look oh. at, or are we just hopping I, I all over? I do. Now? We're gonna hop around because there's something I want. Do we to have get to talk to about Surge? We, uh. We will definitely talk about Surge because I know he's your favorite character. <laughs> uh, but we had talked before about the big car chase at the beginning. We don't need to rehash all of it. The note I wanted to make is I love 80s car chases <laughs> because everything is practical. And like nowadays you get a lot of effects, you get fake crashes, you get weird camera angles. There's something so great about it just being practical and The fact that it's not very clean either, like, it's not polished. It's just cars running into each other. And there's something so satisfying at watching real cars 
crash into each other in a movie. And it happens at the beginning in this huge car chase where this big uh, semi-tractor trailer thing just keeps hitting car after car. And it happens at the end where all these police cars come in at once and they all kind of crash into each other like it's the Blues Brothers. <laughs> and it's just, it is so satisfying. And I, I know we can't go back to this, but... I would like to see more of this in today's films. Oh, it's it's like the whole um the the Indiana Jones sequel came out and I remember I had the DVDs of the original, you know, and yeah. they on the special features they even specifically talk about they purposely chose to do practical effects because they're more realistic and you can definitely tell when you watch the fourth movie that came out and mm-hmm. was all CGI stuff. And, I mean, you still get the explosions, and I guess it keeps the actors safer or something, mm-hmm. but but yeah. it well, doesn't look quite as good. You, you got that with right. Star Wars, too. When the prequels yes. came out, they went, oh, we've got all this new computer technology, but it just felt wrong. And then they went back right. in the newer ones. They've gone back a lot mm-hmm. more to practical effects than they did in the prequels. And when they did um, Mad Max Fury Road, oh, yeah. they talked about how like 95% of that was all practical effects. Like, and it's it's wonderful. And and people loved it. They they appreciated the fact that it was basically if they could do it right then and there, they did it. Mm-hmm. And so you had all of these explosions, all these people being flung around and stuff. It was just all practical effects. It was all stunt people. And I think you notice and people appreciate when you do that and you put that work in it. And with with stunt stuff, with I mean, we talked about it before when we were doing labyrinth and stuff with puppetry and stuff like that. You don't need things to look perfect, but there's something about the feel of having something tangibly there in the scene when it's happening that is noticeable to the audience. Yeah, and I think part of it is that the sequence of shots are, they're not perfect. They're always like a little off, at least by today's standards, Mm -hmm. because, you know, years, 30 years down the line, we figured out these are the camera angles you use for a car chase. There's a visual language to that. And this is a precursor to that, where I don't, I don't know this visual language because it's 30 years out of date. And so I don't know what to necessarily expect from this film or expect from a car chase or a car crash. And it's really neat to see how they did these things in the 80s. I think what happened is Detroit had a whole bunch of old cars that they just wanted to get rid of. So <laughs> right. they're like, hey, can you put these in your movie and crash a giant truck <laughs> through them so we don't have well, to pay to dispose of them? We're going to park them all on the same street. <laughs> you guys do whatever. We'll pick up the wreckage tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. They were all trash cars. There's yes. not a good-looking car in the bunch. They were oh. all like 1970s Pintos or something. <laughs> I don't know that's what they were. But, like, Pinto just in my brain is a bad car. I felt bad for one of them because I, in my brain, associate all white oh, VW Beetles with Oh, it was Herbie. It was the love bug. They killed Herbie they in this kill film. Herbie. I had the exact same thought when <laughs> oh. that one got smashed. Because all yeah. the others were parked cars and the bug was yeah. actually driving and they smashed. And I'm like, oh, they killed Herbie. And they, they killed the, okay, the, what we talked about this offline as yeah. well, where... Every car chase scene has to have the fruit truck that gets exploded. Oh, So you yes. see fruit flying everywhere. Except this one, when they give the close-up shot of the giant truck running into the fruit truck, there's a big sign on the side that says vegetables. Yeah, you should never drive a fruit truck <laughs> in a movie. Uh, if you're living in a movie, don't own a fruit truck. It will get destroyed. Guaranteed. All right. 
So, that's all I wanted to say about that car chase. Sarah, you wanted to talk about, is his name Serge? Serge. Serge. He is in two scenes and... But he steals the show. He's great. He is definitely... He is a very specific 1980s stereotype of a gay man, even though it's not ever... I mean, oh. he could be... Now, I didn't did you necessarily not, did you not consider as him as homosexual. Gay? Like, I could see homosexual, but that's not the blatant thing that I took. I took, like, flamboyant foreigner who doesn't quite understand our customs or the way that we say things. Oh, no. I was definitely going for pretentious, flamboyant, homosexual artsy. I, I would agree with Sarah. Because then the no. other guy came up with all of oh, his Oh, because he did the whole touching <laughs> of the, the chest. Sure. Oh, this is not sexy and I'm touching I could see both, but I'm sure a homosexual could pronounce the word Axel as opposed to Akmol. But there also is, at this time, there was the very weird... And it's... there For anyone who is a theater person, there is the song in Legally Blonde the Musical, uh, Gay or gay European. Gay or European. And this is all basically right. what's happening here. And there was this really weird stereotype type of gay, specifically European men. And I think that is what this this character is going for. Now, I think, like in Legally Blonde, he was gay and, and European. European. Right. Okay. I see. <laughs> I but, think we're, we can both be right here. Yes. But, like, it's this very... But it's just Bronson Pinchot being kind of what he does, which is come in, say some sassy, ridiculous line and leave. And it's... He has no point to be there, but it's just really funny one-liners or just like, just like the, oh, if it's not too, oh, t like something about, can you get the, the, what is it, wedge of lime? No, he wants a yes. lemon twist. Do so you want a lemon twist? He's like, like, oh, if it, if it isn't too much bother, and he just looks at him and goes, no, don't be stupid. <laughs> no, don't be stupid. stupid. It's so, and the whole thing was like, button up your shirt. This is not sexy. <laughs> oh, yeah, he's really great. I, I liked him as a bit role. Oh, uh, really the, him and the Banana so, Man. <laughs> oh, the Banana Man of Damon Wayans. Who, banana Man is how he's credited in the film, <laughs> uh, which we discovered. He is literally a man working in Axe Foley's hotel who lets him have bananas for free because they're both black, I guess. <laughs> but he also has a really weird accent going on. Yeah. He, he also has the flamboyant man accent going on. Maybe they were trying to say, hey, you're in California now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Even though it's not San Francisco. Oh, no. San Francisco flamboyants are all, like, drag queens. Well, It's yeah. a different stereotype they're, up there. They're all Nathan Lanes. <laughs> in, in, in San Francisco, it's big, it's draggy, it's over the top. L.A., it's all, we're wearing, like, like LA, Miami. It's more European. We're wearing <laughs> Miami Vice suit coats and some, like, sockless boat shoes. Uh, so I want to get talk to like Victor Maitland, the villain of this picture. He never blinks. He never blinks. He's got a mole at his face that is kind of like a third eye <laughs> that I couldn't stop looking at. Oh, I was just distracted by his blue eyes and non-blinking. See, I didn't even notice the blinking because I never looked at his eyes. I could never I not notice the blinking. I always looked between his eyes and slightly up because that's where this mole is. Uh, but he is is presented as this art magnet who is very wealthy, very well-respected in this community uh, and uh, has connections with the cops because whenever he needs them, he sh they show up right away. But he's not a good criminal in that 
he doesn't hide his crime. All of his crime seems to be like out in the open or when somebody comes sniffing around to see if he's suspicious at all, he literally throws them out of a window to try to get rid of them and tell them, well, I must be innocent, but you go out this window, don't bother me again. I can understand, like, you know, he, he, he felt like he was being harassed or whatever the first time, so he gets all of his henchmen to throw him out is one thing. To throw him through a window of your own right. business seems a little extreme, because now you have a broken window. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's just going to be a whole hassle of insurance claims and stuff like that. You, they're never going to get a payout on that. You did it to yourself. Like, yeah, come on, guys. You just, just don't defenestrate anyone. Come on. Oh, I do love that word. It's one of my favorites. Yeah, I that's- rarely get to use it, and this is apropos. Oh, I get to use it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> that and trepanation are ones that I... Or for specific terms that I like that you never get to use in common talking. You don't mm-hmm. get to use trepanation to say anything. I don't even know what it means. It means drilling a hole, putting a hole in someone's skull. Oh, I have heard of that. Yeah, there was this whole medical practice where they thought people would get better if they mm-hmm. just started drilling into brains. Yeah, there's a whole episode of Sawbones about it. Yes. All right. So the other thing that Victor Maitland does is like where there's the warehouse with the drugs. He shows up. In person. He doesn't just send his henchmen to deal with this person next to the drugs. He specifically goes to where the drugs are so that the investigator can see him with the drugs and put two and two together. Because for most of this movie, all Axel Foley has is coffee grounds. And he keeps going back to Victor Maitland with no plan whatsoever. But luckily, Victor Maitland provides by being evil... And throwing him out of places and getting him arrested. Uh, like like the restaurant scene? Yes, where, specifically where, the restaurant scene. I don't scene. know if Victor Maitland really had to do much for that because Axel throws a guy into the buffet table, which I guess... Breaking bulb. <clears throat> which actually, when you watch it, was not Axel throwing the guy because you plainly see a different person's face. <laughs> I'll have to relook at that one because that one I yeah, didn't notice. Too. Like, there's a lot of real bad um, stage fighting going on here. It's not, obviously, it's not stage fighting, but, like, um, fight choreography going on in this movie. Like, real, real bad. So, the other thing Victor Maitland does uh, is when he finds uh, Jenny Summers and Axel Foley in his warehouse with all the drugs, uh, one, he doesn't kill Axel Foley outright. Uh, He leaves him to his henchmen, but he also kidnaps Jenny. And he doesn't take her to, say, another warehouse that he owns. He takes this kidnapped woman to his home, to his residence, where everyone who works for him will see this woman and see him with this woman. uh, So that when the cops come later, he doesn't have plausible deniability that he doesn't know where this woman is. Because, of course, he does. She's at his house. Although it doesn't seem like he has any, like non-gangsters that work for him. You think, like, him being this this big, like, honcho, part, he'd have some, like, legitimate workers on the art side of things that don't know what's going on, but it does seem like all of them are just bad guys as well that pull out guns at a moment's notice. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I just, I would guess the man owns more than one warehouse. You would think. Or, but- like, a safe house where he can keep a kidnapped woman. <laughs> well, and they, they even point out, at least, 
I don't know if it was ever proven, uh, but Axel decided that he knew this by coffee grounds and following people, but I guess Victor was paying someone on the side to get things out of custom before it went through customs so that they didn't find the drugs, and then they would empty the box and then bring it back to customs again. Which seems kind of pointless if you have the coffee grounds there specifically to get it through customs so the drug dogs don't smell it. So, well, <laughs> But yes, anyway, that's a good if point. he's paying those people to do that, are those still his mafia henchmen people or are those just random custom workers? I think they're, they're, they've got to be low-level criminals because that's what Mikey was doing. That's how he got the bonds. But then, so I mean, these these aren't his most trusted henchmen. But then Axel goes to the actual customs place when he follows that crate, and none of those people are actually involved in it. No, they're right. just really, really bad at their jobs. Oh yeah, this custom customs bonded warehouse, I think is what it's called, has zero security. So much so that Axel Foley could just walk in off of the street. I mean, street. there was a security guard, but and these uh, these. Criminals can drive up a truck, drop off a box, and then just leave and don't get questioned at all or have to sign anything or swipe a badge or nothing. Yeah, they're they're very bad at their job. <laughs> right. So, one more word of Victor Maitland and his poor decision making. When he's with Jenny at his home and he sees Axel Foley and two other cops and his security cameras, he could, A, call the cops and say, hey, there's an illegal search going on. Uh, you need to get these guys out of here. They have guns. We need your help. Get someone over here immediately. Or B, he could just leave. He could leave with Jenny, and then they've got nothing. And so when the, the higher-up cops come, the, Axel Foley and these other two detectives get arrested, and Victor Maitland gets away. Instead, he decides to stay there and have a shootout, and he dies. You see how Carl has thought through all of these criminal activities. I, I, no, no. This is how much Victor Maitland has not thought through them. Because I thought about it for five minutes, and I've got a better plan than he does. I'm a little concerned about our safety, Mark. Ah, that's okay. all right. Carl moved away, so it's he doesn't live right. close enough to do anything <laughs> now. So we're safe. Right, right. Chicago should be worried. I mean, Chicago's got enough to be worried about. Yeah, you're not wrong. All right. So the other thing I have a note on here is I just want to talk about how this movie and a bunch of movies at this time decided uh, kind of collectively that to save money, we're just going to set everything in L.A., we're already in L.A. filming. Why don't we just set movies in L.A.? Then we could film in L.A. and save a bunch of money. Because there were so many films where, like, even the Mighty Ducks did this. with the, Where they had a competition, but heck, it's next to L.A. So we get all these nice L.A. Uh, landscapes that we can show. Or, say, um, it's Beverly Hills Ninja, which I've used for a game. Hey! Uh, <laughs> That's also a thing I haven't seen. I haven't yeah. either, but... <laughs> but, like, this is a weird period in the 80s where the movie companies figured out we could just save money by setting every film in L.A. This is before the point where it was too expensive to film in L.A., and now Correct. all L.A. films take place in Canada. Right. It's Toronto pretending to be L.A. And New York, and Chicago, and mm -hmm. literally everywhere. Ah. <laughs> uh. But yeah, it was it's just this weird period in the 80s that's going on here. All right. So, 
Let's go through our notes. See if we have anything else. Uh, <laughs> let's see. I have DuckTales woo. <laughs> <laughs> um, Life is like a We talked about the terrible police cars and, and obvious stuntman and annoying mm-hmm. laugh. So <laughs> Great. Oh, I definitely still oh. have written down lounge chair human skin, which... You, oh, Sarah, explain this lounge chair human skin. <laughs> it's, it's this, it looks almost like a hammock that instead of being strung by... Like between a tree, it just has a base stand. It's an outdoor chair, but it's this weird, leathery, dried blood texture and color that just no. looks like human it's, skin. It's that one it creature an thing chair? from Doctor Who, that one lady oh, yeah. who was just it's a sheet of skin. It's definitely Cassandra. <laughs> and I'll have to maybe take a screenshot of this and post it because it Absolutely. is a weird chair to have like <laughs> in your sunroom of your house. <laughs> Uh, well, I think we covered all of my notes, which is to go out on a high note. Should we all just try to do the Eddie Murphy laugh before oh, going on to games? That's a high note? Uh, it's a note for sure. We've done this before where we tried to imitate a noise. When was, what episode stitch. was that? Stitch. We oh. tried to do Stitch. We did try to do Stitch. And I was really bad at it. All right, we don't have to. We can just cut this Ooh, out and go. I can't, I can't, I can't do it. <laughs> uh, nope, that's not it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's like a non-ironic Urkel laugh is what Eddie Murphy sounds it's, like. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that was actually pretty good. That's not bad. Yeah, that one. I'm, I I think Mark's. Got I buy the, it. I don't even know. General... I need to listen to it to know. But there's like a weird like hiccup quality to it. <laughs> That's not bad. That, That's my best attempt, anyway. Anyway, we'll cut all uh, this together because I have nothing better to do. Okay. Wow, we're just just at an hour and we're at games. Well, the thing of it is, there's not much to this movie. Yeah, I mean, we but didn't really explain. But I feel really like explain. we talked about a ton of stuff. Yeah, and we, but we didn't really explain the thing that he solved. But <laughs> well, it's because he didn't solve anything. We knew the mystery as an audience member. Anyway, I did see the uh, the judo flip, and you are right. It's this man is totally not Eddie Murphy. not Eddie Murphy at all. Oh, whoa! He looks, whoa, I see he, it! Yeah, exactly. He looks more like High Church from, um, oh, Police Academy than he does Eddie Murphy. Yeah. It, uh, that yeah. is a much bigger man. Yes. <laughs> oh, you know, I did want to mention another thing. Maybe I'll slip it in later in the game. That's what he said. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of, there was a nice time when the guy was saying something about there was a thing the the, the chief was talking about getting an, a banana in the in your behind or something oh, when he, when Axel Foley got away and I was like, hmm, okay. <laughs> the, the the guy's name is Bubba Smith, the guy that and it's High Tower from Plus oh, yeah, Ten. Yeah. But yeah, that looks because he's Eddie Murphy's a pretty slight guy. He's pretty small. This guy is big. And has like Massive. a big bulky mustache. Like, yeah, it was a bigger mustache, I think, is what I it's first noticed. Very noticeable. The other thing I wanted to talk about, which I'll bring up now, maybe cut it in, is I liked that they portrayed uh, both Beverly Hills and Detroit as interracial. Now, granted, Detroit has more African American cops, but Paul Reiser works there too. 
and Beverly Hills is more Caucasian cops. However, there is an African-American detective on the force as well. And you see less of the whole thing in Beverly Hills. Like, like most of the time you're focused in on, like, the four people. Whereas, like, in Detroit, as, as small as the times, the one time you go in, they're in the locker room. So you're seeing, like, 20 cops at one time. Right. Whereas, like, there's only, like, one scene when you see, like, a full squad room of people in Beverly Hills. So, I mean, there could be certainly more African-Americans working there. Though I did like that, you know, there was an African-American actor besides Eddie Murphy who got screen time in Beverly Hills so that it, it wasn't necessarily, you know, whites versus blacks. They were both kind of intermixed and you didn't have that segregation there. And as much as there are, like... Eddie Murphy uses a couple times uses his race as a joke to get things. It's played off that way, but it's not played off in the the cop thing as a reason why they don't trust him. Right. They don't trust him because he's coming out of nowhere and doing stuff without telling them first. Yes. Not and I I read Eddie Murphy's racial jerks as that's just Eddie Murphy. Yeah. If you've listened to Eddie Murphy's albums, his stand-up, that's very much a lot of what he talks about. And that's him bringing himself to the character yes. as opposed to make a statement of the society at this time. Which, like, there's definitely p- place and time for, like, but there's a lot of movies that would try to make this a racial issue. Mm-hmm. And in doing that in a movie like this, really all you're doing is kind of almost downplaying those issues because there's no way to bring those serious topics up in a movie like Beverly Hills Cop and not yeah. turn it into a joke. But I, I appreciated the film for that. The other thing I just found a note on that I wanted to talk about is I feel there's a, there's a small scene and it's just a, a minor crux that I just wanted to open up to you guys to have a discussion about storytelling. I felt that there was a scene in this movie that's just, it was out of place. And that is when... <laughs> um, this, are we going to talk about the strip club? <laughs> oh, no. Okay, that was uh, what that you were was, saying was weird before. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's it's weird that, it, you know, you have the strip club in this comedy. It's That was out of place. Uh, the thing that I want to talk about, however, is when Maitland and his henchmen go and talk to Jenny just to get some information out of her about Axel Foley. And she tells them nothing anyway. Yes. The reason I think it's wrong is, one, the scene doesn't accomplish anything. It is summed up in one line in the next scene where Jenny tells Axel, hey, Maitland, he was here looking for you. Uh, You better lay low for a bit. The reason I think this is wrong is the entire film is from Eddie Murphy's perspective. He is our, he is a guide to the audience to this world, both in Detroit and Beverly Hills. We are seeing things as he understands them. This is a scene without Eddie Murphy in it. It's showing us something that Eddie Murphy wouldn't know. And I feel like us getting knowledge as an audience that Eddie Murphy doesn't have knowledge on is wrong for this type of movie where it's an investigation. But that happens a lot with the police. You didn't have a problem with that? I didn't because those were, I guess those were more like jokes or throwaway things. And it was them on a stakeout. Eddie Murphy already knew they were on a stakeout. (laughs) So we're seeing something that he... He could, he either knows, he doesn't know specifically what they're talking about, but he knows they're there. He knows they're there waiting for him. you know that 47% of Americans have undigested red meat in their system? (laughs) Or whatever that thing. up to five pounds by age 40, Mark. (laughs) I don't even remember what he said. It's no joke. 
So, from a storytelling standpoint, I would take this scene out. It doesn't do anything. And have every scene have Eddie Murphy in it so that the audience has a surrogate. Sorry, it's stuck in my head now. (laughs) (laughs) All right. I feel like every time we get quiet, it should segue into that song like it did every time in that movie. I don't know. I think it was just... Less of the problem of like the needing of the the uh, the audience circuit, and more of the fact that just all of those these scenes were just real, real boring. Like they weren't even like he was coming so you could see what a bad guy he was and how scary he was because he wasn't even that scary. He wasn't like super like I'm being nice to you, but I'm threatening you. He was just kind of weird. Well, he was the you know the '80s action movie British bad guy, like European it was a scene bad that, guy, like, whatever his accent is. It should have been this scene where, like, if she hadn't already known there were suspicions about him, if Eddie Murphy hadn't already told her the suspicions, this should have been the scene that should have tipped her off to the fact that, oh, he's acting a little weird. Because, like, he's coming to see if she knows anything. And and in a normal thing, she wouldn't know anything from Eddie Murphy yet. He would have kept her in the dark. And he would have, bad guy, Maitland, is that his name? Would have come... To, to check to see if she knows anything yet, but his cover of being the just a normal business and would start to slip because he's pushing too hard to see if she knows information, and she starts to see, oh, maybe he's threatening me. Is he threatening me? But the problem is she already knows their suspicions he's a bad guy. He really isn't pushing a whole lot for information. Mm. He is, like, it's pretty boring, his threatening, and so nothing really, there's no information gained from this. She doesn't learn anything, he doesn't learn anything, we don't learn anything, no one learns anything. Yeah, and so I would agree with that. Scene. I think, again, back to the mystery of the story kind of thing, where they're trying to get make it look like he's that calm, cool, collected bad guy who there's things going on that he's he's thinking things in his head, but he doesn't have to come out and be aggressively mean about it. And he's just like, look at me, I have an accent and I am creepy and mysterious. That makes me a bad guy. The thing in in the arts of the, the show don't tell, but this doesn't show or tell. No. <laughs> this so much, sits there. A much better version of what this scene was supposed to be is the the kitchen scene in Inglorious Bastards. I have where, not. We're not going back to the fact that I've never seen a Tarantino movie. Fine. Uh, but it's a, it's a scene where an investigator comes into this farmer's home asking if he's seen any Jews in the area, because that's what he does. He catches Jews and he takes them to concentration camps or whatever. And it's a very tense scene, because this investigator knows that the guy is hiding Jews. And... The guy knows that he's hiding Jews. And it's a very tense <laughs> conversation uh, that yes. the investigator is not threatening, but he's talking calmly, but very clearly he is intimidating this guy by just asking for simple things that he knows the guy has to give It to should be this almost chess match of right. h- giving of how much information each of them knows separately how much both of them know, and how much they're willing to say. But right. that doesn't really happen in this. And yeah, it should have been tense. There should have been, we should have felt like Jenny was in trouble. Yeah. Uh, and there's just none of that. Jenny should have been worried she was giving too much away. I think Victor Maitland's greatest crime is how boring he is in this film. If, if he should be arrested for anything, it should be for that. And you can 
do a villain that's real boring, but you kind of have to lay into it heavier and be like, oh, he's just kind of a normal guy for being the bad guy, and that people, like, fall for that. But no one's really falling for it, because he's, they're not playing into, oh, he's a nice guy. He's just, because he's not even a nice guy. He's, he's just, not nice. He's a, bl- he's a block of wood with creepy eyes. <laughs> yeah. He is, the second you see him on screen, you think, oh, he's the villain. Yeah. And I don't see why everybody else in this movie can't see that initially. Anywho, we are running late, so let's go on to game. Our first game is the pitch game, a game where we take a couple of properties and show them the form. It's this meets this to describe this film. Uh, so I'm going to go first uh, and describe this film in terms of other movies. Since this is an SNL alum in a film where they are not respected in their profession and called away from their home to Beverly Hills to solve a mystery involving illegal money, also featuring the main character taking on guises to gain access to warehouses, and a movie where a former criminal becomes a cop and is constantly conning everyone around him. During the course of his journey, he befriends two cops who actually have jurisdiction who lead him to their border to see him off at the end of the film. This is Beverly Hills Ninja meets Blue Streak. Well, Blue Streak was the Martin Lawrence yeah, cop movie. Yeah, I forgot about that movie. Alright, Mark, take us away. What do you got? I should have done <clears throat> more searching around for cop movies to think about for this because I could I, I had ideas, but yeah, that was a good one that I had forgotten about. Uh, so I believe Carl is going to steal two of mine. <laughs> it's very possible. So I'm going to start with one of them. All right. So it's a movie where the, uh, an African-American police officer is the joke of his department, but ends up solving and stopping an international drug operation posing as an art dealer. And... Yep. A movie where the protagonist uses unorthodox methods, defies his superiors, and uses vacation as cover to catch the bad guy. It's Rush Hour meets The Fifth Element. <laughs> I haven't, I've never seen Rush Hour. It's, it's, is that why you're crying? No, I thought we I was We can watch sneeze. it. I, it's fine. No, I, she's I just crying I because sneeze. I was talking. <laughs> I thought I was going to sneeze, and I got where it was real stuck in the nose, and I'm just like, <laughs> just come out. And, I, and I'm not, um, what is it, light phobic or whatever, where you look look at light and you can sneeze. I can't do that, so I got nothing. Wow. I just have to kind you're of. You're lucky. I get that every time I walk out of a building. I kind of have to just breathe heavy until something agitates my nose enough that I can finally sneeze. All or right. wait till it goes away. Okay. So, Sneezy Sarah, give us your game. <laughs> because it's a buddy cop comedy set in the 80s meets a fish out of water story where a man from a smaller or from a less stuck up area comes to an area with more wealth and and <laughs> money and stuff, it's <laughs> Lethal Weapon meets Mr. Deeds. <laughs> I don't know why Mr. Deeds was the first fish-out-of-water comedy I could think of, but it was. I could have sworn you were going to reference Johnny Tsunami. Oh, actually, that's Which a I good have never one. seen. <gasps> How? All that right. played constantly on the Disney Channel. <laughs> All right, so my next one... A movie where a loud-mouthed African-American cop <laughs> botches a sting operation and where a Californian police officer is charged with monitoring an out-of-town cop who is constantly escaping their tail. 
also featuring questionable police investigation tactics. Uh, and a film with a Detroit cop who tries to solve the murder of someone he knew in a previous life, uh, foiling a lot of other crimes he comes across along the way. This is Rush Hour meets Robocop. Oh, I, I forgot he either. was from I haven't Detroit. Seen they have a statue of him in Detroit, I've never Mark. been there. I haven't I seen <laughs> any of these movies you're referencing. Uh, oh, I, you're going to see these, I bet. Yeah, they're like 80s and 90s action films. I know what the movies are. I just haven't seen them. Like, I have no, right. He's just saying you know what they are because you know the genre. He's acting like I've never heard of RoboCop. Well, you said you had no idea what I was talking about. I've never seen them. So I gave you the most, most basic explanation of it. I understand the concept of okay. RoboCop. All right. He's a Mark's cop gonna and go he's a next. robot. Because I bet uh, Sarah has heard of these things that I'm going to say next. Uh, sure. She may have <laughs> seen them. It's possible. We'll so, see. Uh, a movie where an out-of-town police officer visits L.A. on vacation and gets mixed up with an international criminal with a German name. And a property where you <laughs> use bananas to disable other cars so you can get away. Oh, that one I know. I have Die Hard meets Mario Kart. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen Die Hard either. What? Oh. Oh, also, um, I did Mr. Deeds, but my second uh, option for a fish out of water story was Crocodile Dundee. <laughs> I haven't seen any of those. So you have that up on me. Oh, right, Carl's going to beat me to here. my third one. Uh, a film with an SNL alum in LA uh, taking on a lot of personas and characters to gain access for an underground drug operation. Uh, and... Is that... Is it Master of Disguise? No. no. Dang. <laughs> uh, a cop on vacation getting caught up in an international <gasps> crime ring and ultimately dismantles it. Featuring ridiculous car chases and machine gun fights, this is Fletch meets Ooh. A Good Day to Die Hard. Oh, see, see, I knew your second one was uh, was another Die Hard movie. But, but you could say SNL alum taking on different personas, and that could be Master of Disguise. Oh, you're right. Uh, but I will never reference Master of Disguise, because that is a horrible film. <laughs> that is a horrible film that I have seen at least three times. Oh. So you spend your time willingly. watching Master, Master of Disguise instead of Rush Hour. I've willingly seen Master of Disguise. Am I not turtly enough? <laughs> Am I not turtly enough for the turtle club? So I, my third one. <laughs> why would that, why would that be where that club is? Why would that be what that club is? <laughs> Mark's just going to go on to his next game. <laughs> okay. Um, so uh, my third one is only one thing, yeah. and it's because of a special reason. Because uh, when I was trying to remember what movie we were supposed to watch for this, I kept thinking of this one instead. Beverly Hills Ninja. <laughs> Very nice. So. Yeah. I... We'll get into this reviews. I maybe confuse some of it as well because the the stories are very similar. The names are very similar. The only difference is you have Chris well, Farley. Well, I had not seen Eddie either Murphy of them, the so I have no idea what the stories were. But just from the title, it was only one word different, so I kept thinking of the wrong one. All right, so let's move on to our second game, which is alternate taglines. This is a word or a phrase you would see on a movie poster that encompasses the theme of the film, though possibly misses the point in our case. 
So I'm again going to start us off here and decide which one to do. Oh, in fact, I'll do the actual taglines from the film. <laughs> we could let Sarah do those. Oh, that's true. Sarah, what, <laughs> do you have the taglines up? Why don't you pull those up? We'll go to you first, then to me, then to Mark. We're going to hear a lot of Carl on this one because the rest of us don't have taglines for this. <laughs> All right. For a real tagline, Beverly Hills Cop. In Detroit, a cop learns to take the heat. In L.A., he learns to keep his cool. Which is not accurate. He does not keep his cool. <laughs> and apparently that was a theatrical one for Australia. Oh, shout out to our Australian listeners who don't exist. <laughs> All right. Maybe someday. Yeah. All right. Uh, my first one, Beverly Hills Cop. He's a streetwise cop encountering a higher class of criminal who luckily knows nothing about concealing his crimes. Yes. That's a tagline? That's my tagline? <coughs> Hers was like two sentences long. I'm choking again. All right, don't I'm having a real die. problem. No, no choking. Sarah, you're not allowed to die on air. Yes, not on air. Because then right, the recording will never done. stop. All right, thank you very I'll much. I'll wait till we're done, and then you're going to have to replace me with another co-host. You uh, have we'll no get... other friends, but... Uh, we'll get a robot. Carl can find friends. He lives in a city. Yeah, but you don't have any friends that are mutually your guys' as friends. Well, I don't have any more funny friends. <laughs> thank you for assuming I'm funny. <laughs> All right, Mark, what do you got? Uh, Beverly Hills Cop. A banana a day keeps the policeman away. Oh, I like that one. Yeah. Uh, Sarah, I'm going to need you to sing this next one. (laughs) (laughs) Now I can't remember what that song sounds like. Uh, Beverly Hills Cop. The heat is on. (laughs) That's not what that sounds like. That's pretty good. It's Glenn Fry, sounding vaguely like Huey Lewis in the news. If you are from the 80s or enjoy 80s music, this movie... Oh, this movie's great for that. They do repeat uh, the the frog song, as I know it, several times. times. So it does get a little boring. A big I'm sorry to Glenn Fry, but I can't really apologize to Glenn Fry because Glenn Fry is dead. Huh. Whoops. All Glenn, right. Glenn Fry is who did the heat. Sad event. news to all the Glenn Fry fans out there. <laughs> you, you heard you, it here first, folks. <laughs> you do that as a joke, but there are a lot of Glenn Fry fans out there. He was a member of the Eagles. <laughs> all right. See, I don't know anything about music. He was really? one of the original members of the Eagles, and then he died. And um, they that's probably why this tour is their last, the tour that they just did was their last tour, because he's gone, and they replaced him with his son for the last tour, named Deacon Fry, for all of the music fans out there. Yeah, that's not me. Anyway, uh, my next one. Uh, Beverly Hills Cop. The only tools you'll need for a murder investigation are hunches, harassment, and homicide. Uh. I focused on the bananas a lot. <laughs> I did. Ring, 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 ring. Banana. Hello? Uh, oh, it's banana phone. So I, I have another one that I was not proud of. I told Carl I only had one, but I'm going to say second sure. one anyway. No, go for it. Beverly Hills Cop. LA's finest get a healthy helping of fruit. <laughs> now, what? <laughs> See, uh, I don't I... like that one, which is why I wasn't going to say it. Can I punch it up slightly? Uh, if if just change it to them getting a healthy dose of potassium. Uh, also, a healthy see, a healthy helping of fruit could come off as. I'm like, 
I don't know. See, that's something weird. Well, this is also one that I came up with like 20 minutes before we were going to start, and I just kind of didn't have time to reword it a bunch. By healthy helping a fruit, were you talking about Surge? (laughs) Yeah, Uh, that was kind of what I was saying. Like, is that like... Well, that's not what I meant, but... (laughs) (laughs) All right. Sarah, give us the last actual tagline, please. Beverly Hills Cop. He's been chased, thrown through a window, and arrested. Eddie Murphy is a Detroit cop on vacation in Beverly Hills. These are yep. all terrible. <laughs> yes. The yeah. only like the only one that feels like a real tagline is the heat is on. Yeah. It's still not good, but at least it feels our taglines, like a tagline. which I uh, will say that our taglines are normally awful. They're normally a step above actual taglines, though. None of these are going to get put in like the top ten list of top ten taglines. No. No. All right, my final one: Beverly Hills Cop. Anything's legal as long as you lie on the police report. <laughs> oh, thanks. Uh, Fiona hated that one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I was trying to ignore that, but everybody had to come. I thought it was our, really funny that she meowed right at me. I, I hope it's on the audio. All right. Our final game is the TV guide game, a description of the plot of the film you'd find in a Netflix or TV guide description, though once again, possibly missing the point. Uh, I'm going to start us off. Uh, So, my description of the plot of Beverly Hills Cop is... A man spends his vacation visiting an old friend, finding creative new uses for fruit, and corrupting the local police force, getting away with just so many counts of trespassing along the way. All right, Mark, what do you got? I just keep hearing the meowing. (laughs) Now, does she hate my words or my voice? Well, she can't hear your voice as far as I know, because I have my headphones on. So probably She just knows. She, she just, just in- I guess it means she saw your face on the screen. Yeah, so. oh. she senses a disturbance in the force. Ow. All right. <laughs> the Beverly Hills Police Department uses most of its resources following a fellow police officer instead of fighting crime. Ha. Oh, they did waste a lot of detectives on this one guy. All right, sir. A man goes on vacation and does everything possible to get himself fired. <laughs> a mango... A mango? A mango? Did your cat just bring you a mango? No, you said a mango. (laughs) Okay. Sarah said, never mind. Anywho, my last one. A young idealistic cop is slowly corrupted over the course of the film, watching his partner assault a suspect but getting cleared of all charges, going to a strip club while on duty, and eventually getting swayed to abandon his orders and breaking into a private residence. Good. She's really loud again. I swear that's just for me. It is. This cat does not like me. Maybe she's cheering for you because we don't. Because we aren't. Uh, is it's my turn now? Yes, yes, it is. A wealthy art collector is accused of smuggling drugs due to his coffee drinking habits. Ah, <laughs> uh, pretty good. <laughs> All right. Or I should say. 
So let's go on to reviews. Our first review scale is the infamous potato scale, which we will tell you uh, the emotions you can expect to feel while watching this film in terms of our relationship with potatoes. So which one of you would like to start us off as I look up the potato scale? <laughs> which one of us even thought about the potato scale uh, today? I wrote one down. Did you? But I know that you're going to enjoy it. So sorry, I don't know what that noise was. <laughs> hmm. Oh my goodness! Why won't you pull up? <laughs> pull up! Pull up! <laughs> There's too You're many of them. Explain. <sighs> oh, I'm so sorry for our audience who has to deal with me. <laughs> okay, Carl and I have differing opinions on this movie, as, as we discussed offline and somewhat during the show. Uh, I. Actually, had never seen it before, but I found that I enjoyed it while I was watching it. It does have several flaws that we have discussed and things that don't really make sense, but I guess that's the kind of thing that I enjoy sometimes, where you can just kind of ignore reality for a while and dive into a really cheesy movie and just enjoy the action sequences and the crazy things going on. So I actually had this as the Steak and Shake Potatoes. I don't oh, even really? know what that is anymore. It's the second place potato. Um, although I will say it is very 80s and you can definitely find those flaws that we discussed. So I would also give it potatoes with eyes that it's spoiled with age. Mm-hmm. All right. I think that's fair. Um... I considered Potatoes with Eyes in that it's definitely very, very 80s. It is quintessential 80s. Uh, and uh, maybe the maybe the cursing hasn't <laughs> held up so well. Uh, just the casual cursing of this movie. It really threw me off. But It's weird to think of that we talked about it way earlier, but that, like in some ways we're... Mer, mer, were more puritanical when it comes to cursing than they were yeah, in the 80s. Which is strange. Um, so I didn't hate it. I'm not going to give it our potato salad, which is just the worst. <laughs> that I came up with that one, didn't I? Am I the only you one sure that did. super hates potatoes? Yeah, I kind of like it, but I it's fine. <laughs> I wish we had, we have tater tots, which means just for kids. We don't have a potato that is just for adults, <laughs> which this movie definitely is. Because of or, all, or 1980s sweary. Because children. of all that realistic death scenes when the guy gets shot. Oh, and does not move at all to show you that he had been hit. Oh, gosh. So I'm trying to find the appropriate potato here. I think... So I came in with expectations as of this movie, because I have liked Eddie Murphy movies like uh, The Nutty Professor or Dr. Doolittle, where there's something there's something science fiction-y going on, and he can bring his comedy to that. And I was expecting more jokes out of this, and I was disappointed that that's not what this film is. So for me, I give a Sweet Potatoes, which was not as expected. And I was... I've seen a lot of, like, police investigation movies... And this one, it's not a great investigation. There's not a great villain. And I was really bored through the middle of this movie while it took its time getting to that major shootout at the end. And so I'm going to give it a raw potato. It was, just, it was kind of bland. I got kind of bored during it. 
Anywho, that's going to be my review. I'm giving it a sweet potatoes and a raw potato. So, speaking of Dr. Doolittle, that's a stay tuned, but not the Eddie Murphy Uh-oh. one. Because at some point, I the am... The Jerry Lewis one? What? No, Dr. Doolittle, not not. Oh, that, that is impressive. Sorry. <laughs> no, at some point, we are going to get to the 1967 Dr. Doolittle. Because you talk about, like, and you think if there's a Rex Harrison movie and an Eddie Murphy movie, you're going to think the Eddie Murphy one's going to be the more out there weird one, but definitely not. The Rex Harrison one has a point where a bunch of people get into the shape of a butterfly, it turns into a butterfly, and then they fly away. Uh, Whereas Eddie Murphy uh, just makes fart jokes with rats. Well, yeah. I mean, that's... <laughs> That's really his statement. Well, if, if you're talking about movies it's all that about are out farts. there, would you rather have Dr. Doolittle Eddie Murphy or Haunted Mansion Eddie Murphy? Uh, oh. Dr. Doolittle. <laughs> so. Um, anyway, but back to the potatoes, now that we've got to yeah. stay tuned. I went with Red Robin's fries, which is better Yum. than expected. That's the first definition of it. Apparently, it's two definitions now. Because I haven't, we talked about this off air, that I haven't actually seen a whole lot of Eddie Murphy in leading roles movies. I haven't seen, like, I don't know, really anything where he is a lead. Like, I didn't see any of the, I've seen Dr. Doolittle, but I didn't see any of the the nutty professor. I didn't see. You didn't see Norbit or Dave. Uh, no. Um, I, but I haven't seen even, like, um. Oh, or Pluto Nash. I did not see, but even, like, the, the ones that people like, like, Coming to America, I didn't see. I didn't see Trading <laughs> Places or anything like that. Um. <laughs> or, or any of that. I didn't see see obviously I didn't see this I didn't see Nutty Professor I didn't see most of what I knew him for was um him being the goofy sidekick in movies so I was like I probably don't like Eddie Murphy I assumed going in as like oh I don't like Eddie Murphy I like him in small doses but no I actually liked this movie I mean it wasn't the best it was a pretty neutral movie I mean it was kind of boring I mean it's he is very charming. He brings a lot of energy. Yeah. This isn't a movie I would necessarily watch again, but with the fact that I was expecting to be like, oh, I I always had the mindset of I wouldn't like Eddie Murphy, like, headed vehicles. No, I actually pretty enjoyed it, and I liked his relationship with, with Judge Reinhold and, and stuff like that, and it was kind of nice. I mean, if it was on TV, I wouldn't necessarily turn the channel, so... <laughs> Well, you'd get a heavily edited version of this film. But at least they would just have to edit the words and wouldn't have to do my favorite thing, which is completely change <laughs> sentences into nonsensical things. Oh, Cheese and rice! <laughs> oh, no, what is the, the, the... There's one in Big Lebowski that makes literally no sense, and it's like... Uh, it's the one about the 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 man in the Alps, and they change it to be something... Or, oh, yeah, it's it's... That's why you never do something with a man in the Alps, and the line is something about... I'm not going to say it on the air because it's really, really bad. But Great. Great <laughs> you, story. You guys can look it up um, if you want. The Big Lebowski edit is one of the worst. All right. So I do need to correct myself. Eddie Murphy is not in Dave. He's in Meet Dave, uh, where he plays a robot with little men living yeah, inside of him. the aliens one. Right. All right. So on that note, let's go on to our second review scale, which is a rewatchability scale from 0 to 10, telling our listeners, should they go back and watch this film? So, I will start us off here, because I had a number in mind in my head as I was watching this. 
I like some characters in this movie. I didn't like some others. I liked some parts in this movie. I didn't like others. The big, especially in the middle. The beginning, I was super on board for it. The end is a giant shootout out of nowhere because there's this comical scene of two <laughs> men trying to climb up a wall. They finally make it, and then a machine gun opens fire out of the blue. Yeah, that's quite whiplash. Yeah, and so totally it's weird. And in the middle, I was kind of bored, just wanting him to just, come on, get get on with it. Find something interesting. And so, for me, I, I, I'm kind of exactly in the middle of the road. Now, I did give Mac and me a five. <laughs> How did and you this, give Mac and me a five? Well, you should have Mark been on the Mark also gave it a five. I yeah, should have. Well, we agreed Mac and me is a middle-of-the-road film. Uh. It uh, is maybe a good. Need, maybe that's a movie a we need to film. revisit at some point where I can maybe. be on the episode, so I can. Oh, we under- would have loved you to be on that episode, Sarah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm so. I'm so sorry. I have a life outside you guys, and people like me uh, and want me to hey, be places. Hey, and- hey, we're deleting you your. Don't make fun of me now. just because I live in this podcast. Yeah, you. Carl doesn't have another job. When this episode ends, uh-huh. he just lives in his computer box. <laughs> yeah. No. I these these are the only people I talk to. Carl's not real. He is a program created specifically for this podcast. Yeah, as soon as we stop recording, I just wait in the darkness until we start again. All right. Well, I am going to give it a higher than a back in me, and I will give I will give this movie a six. But that's, that's some, as high as I can go. That is some high praise. A higher than a back in me. <laughs> You know what? Maybe a 5.5 is better. All right. So um, I was going to give it a... I, I literally... My my number scale is so messed up because it changes. But yeah. like, I was going to give it a 6.5 on the positive right. sk- side of, meh, it's good. Like, I don't have any real aggressive feelings in any direction. But it's 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 towards the positive side of neutral. So 6.5. Yeah, I got no real opinions on this one. Sorry. So I... As far as now, since we call this the rewatchability scale, not the this is what we thought of the movie scale. So, well, <laughs> having said would that, would you tell people to go back and watch? In it? in the however many weeks it's been since we knew which movie we were going to watch, I have seen this movie four times. So. Four times? <laughs> yeah. So Mark may have Stockholm syndrome for this movie. So wow, I. It was only three until we all watched it together today. Oh, so okay. Was, so one was so, my fault. So, but I, um, having watched it several times, I will say the first time I watched it through, I really enjoyed it. Uh, thus, the second place French fries potato rating. But you know, the more times you watch through it, the more of these little things you notice that are like, well, that wasn't so great. And then there's this other thing that kind of stands out that isn't wonderful. So I think if it's on rewatchability, if you watch it too often, you're not going to enjoy it. So don't watch it four times in two weeks. Yes. So how long would you need if it's been, say, 10, 15, 20 years since you've seen the film? Oh, sure. Like our audience. What, what would you rate that? If it's been years and years or you have never seen it, I actually had written down a nine originally. Ooh. 
right. Um, if if it's something that you have seen and you remember or you remember enjoying it again, like it's eight or nine, I think I have changed it since then on my paper, scribbled <laughs> it out and changed it to a seven. So I, you know, I could just say eight and go right in the middle. But I think it had good points for me, and I guess it depends on what your style of movie is that you enjoy watching. Um, I would not watch it, you know, several times in a year, but possibly once every year. I don't know. I probably will not, but <laughs> but you could. I think it has enough to it that there are those little things. It's kind of, again, if you're if, when you have that nostalgic feeling for an older movie that you remember growing up with, which is the point of our podcast, that even if it's not a great movie, you still might enjoy watching it because you have those feelings for it. Guys, I just realized something. Uh-oh. What? You know what we never talked about? What? Human head tea party. Oh, yeah. That's, <laughs> it's just modern art. Yeah, too, too late now. <laughs> uh, just say modern you. art and we're good. <laughs> If anyone wants to know about the human head tea party, maybe we'll take a screenshot. Is that a political party? <laughs> human head tea party. Yeah, it's my new it's my new one. The only thing we believe in is throwing stuff in the harbor and bringing back duels. Now, do the things we throw in the harbor, does that need to be severed heads? Only sometimes. Okay, great. Uh, but Mark, I... I can appreciate your rating on this. I think I was going into it with higher expectations because it's a film that I, I didn't watch a lot as a child, but it's a film that I always knew about. It was in the cultural zeitgeist. It was a title you could name and people were like, oh, right, that Eddie Murphy movie. Having, but uh, And so that just kind of went on with me throughout my life. It's just like, oh, right. I remember that being great when I was young, which is not the case. I remember people... <laughs> saying the name when I was young. Yes. And so I built it up in my mind saying, oh, that must have been a greatest movie of the 80s. And it's not the greatest movie of the 80s. No. And that's fine because it's not trying to And be. I don't think, I would not say it's a great movie, but I would say it is worth watching. So, I, you know, it's... it's. So I poisoned myself with my expectations. Yes. And that's why I gave and it And I would say the same thing. I had never seen it, but it's one of those that you've always heard about growing up. So you know that mm -hmm. it existed. It was a cultural thing. Like people, I don't think people have, there's nothing quotable in it, but people know the no. movie if you talk about it. So Right. Maybe that's what I was missing. There's no one line that Eddie Murphy delivers that you can quote from this film, except for all of the F-bombs <laughs> that he does. Anywho, that is going to bring us to uh, Sarah telling us where you can find us online. Yes, if I find my note. <laughs> All right. You can find us on Facebook at Retrograding Podcast. You can find each other at Retrograding Party Line. Our website is retrograding.fireside.fm. We are also, we're still on iTunes, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we're on iTunes. I tried to find us the other day, and I was really bad at explaining to someone how to find us on iTunes, and they couldn't. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I don't what do you, know. Just search what do you mean? for you the just, name of our podcast. Google retrograding. Somehow that didn't work, and I what? don't know why. I don't know. I'm I an, will look at iTunes as soon as we are done I'm here. an 80-year-old woman in a young person's body. I stay and home in what is essentially a Snuggie and watch soap operas. It's on the iTunes. It's Here's on, a nickel. Go buy a song from the it's, iTunes It's on woman. the Me T 
iTunes. The the YouTunes. Yeah, the YouTunes, not the iTunes. We need a MeTunes. A MeTunes. Anyway, you can like, you can comment, you can subscribe, you can leave a review, you can you send can us some. You can do all the things. Um, so many I would things. appreciate if someone would send me some candy. Oh, I like that. All of us candy. <laughs> all no, of us just candy. sponsor. You gotta sponsor Sarah's candy addiction. Yeah, if if you guys could, t- who really like our podcast, tweet out to one of those like candy subscription boxes yeah. and be like, "Hey guys, sponsor these guys." I would love that. You know what the problem is? <laughs> we don't have a central address for all three of us, so that would be difficult. Yep. For yeah, them. they would that's come directly to me. That's because we don't get fan mail yet. But just wait. Anyway, Someday. our music is done by Dominique Barnes. Uh, and she's great, but that's it. We, yep, we. she's great. We're not pointing to anything because she doesn't do that anymore. But we still think she's great. Yes, correct. So our final segment to close this out is, guys, I learned something today. A lesson I learned while watching this movie. And it is simply, never own a fruit truck. <laughs> It'll only end in tears. I've never seen a fruit truck that hasn't gotten hit by a car. Never? All right. Never. Not even in I real life? I don't see the... Nope. Never seen one, Mark. <laughs> That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Uh, and on that note, we're going to close out this episode. Thank you for joining us and listening all the way through. We will catch you guys next time. Next time.